Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk Podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. Head over to CanMedEvents.com now to learn all about our CanMed 2021 event that will take place October 12th through 14th at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. And be sure to get your tickets today at our special early bird rate. While you're at CanMedEvents.com, be sure to sign up for email alerts to stay up to date with all the news surrounding this industry-leading event. The best place to do that is on our podcast page, which you can find in the main menu under the media tab. You can also go there directly by going to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk. There's a sign up form on that page, and if you complete it, you will be entered into a drawing to win two CanMed 2021 VIP dinner tickets. On that page, you can also listen to all the Coffee Talk podcast episodes in our archive, including conversations with keynote presenters Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, Dr. Ethan Russo, and Seth Crawford. Speaking of keynote presenters, my guest today is our CanMed 2021 keynote presenter in the safety focus area, Grace Bandong. Grace is a scientific strategy leader for Eurofins, where she has spent over 25 years in the food and supplement industry specializing in contaminants analysis and risk assessment. She has recently started applying that expertise to the hemp industry, helping to establish contaminant testing standards for the industry as a member of many different trade associations and groups, including the AOAC, the U.S. Hemp Authority, and the HIA's Sampling and Analytical Task Force. On this episode, I speak with Grace about her experience in the food testing industry, the need for better standards for cannabis and hemp testing, what makes cannabis and hemp such a difficult plant to test, how a risk assessment strategy can help ensure safe products, and why safety and contaminant testing should be done throughout cultivation and production of cannabis products. Before we get into my conversation with Grace, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Eurofins. Eurofins is a world leader in food, environment, pharmaceutical product, and agri-science testing services. With 48,000 staff and 900 labs across 50 countries, Eurofins offers clients over 200,000 unique analytical methods. Learn more at Eurofins.com. And finally, this episode and every episode of the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast is fueled by the Hemp and Coffee Exchange. Hemp coffee is a healthy, delicious, natural product rich in trace minerals and nutrients providing sustained energy without the crash of regular coffee. For more information, check out hempcoffeeexchange.com and use the promo code DRINKHEMP to get 10% off your purchase. Okay, without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with CAMED 2021 keynote presenter, Grace Bandong. Good morning, Grace. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Ben. It's a pleasure. 
It's great to have you um, here on the podcast and also as our keynote presenter at CanMed 2021 in the safety focus area. And um, I have to admit that the safety focus area is always a little challenging for us to select speakers for um, because, as you know, we like to attract folks from many different facets of the cannabis and hemp world, the researchers, physicians, nurses, cultivators, lab managers, and typically the safety and lab testing topics are a little, a little too technical for some people who aren't in that field. But I think the topic that you have laid out is really applicable to everyone because it's all about implementing best practices to ensure product safety, which we can all agree is, is very important. So I was hoping you, you, we could start today with you providing an overview of your presentation. Um, yes, I'd be happy to. So what we did, um, it's, it's great that you mentioned that, um, you know, your, your audience is usually in the safety side, um, um, in the, in the health area, nurses and doctors, and then we come the lab managers, because I, I took this risk assessment approach actually from the, um, from the emergency response system or, uh, or, or from codex, where they, um, where you assess if there's something that's happening, for example, a disease or an exposure, it, uh, is it um, likely to cause um, illness or harm? And um, so I use that into um, into looking at contaminants for food safety. So what we what we did was because a long time ago I had somebody come to me and, and ask, um, I have twenty four hundred ingredients. Could you please tell me what I need to test as far as contaminants and what I need to consider on this 2,400 ingredients? And I looked at him and I was like, um, I really have no idea. And that's probably going to take a long, long time and a ton of money for you to test. So mm -hmm. then I, on my research, I discovered on this process of, um, um, of defining risk. And, and then we ended up being able to come up with a process where you look at your ingredients, the materials you work with, and then you um, determine um, which materials are high risk, medium risk, or low risk, and then you categorize your ingredients. And then if, since most people only have a limited amount of money to put to testing, even though safety is number one and, and quality um, is to protect the consumers, um, the, the, it, will, it helps them. It helps them to um, focus their dollars on the, the riskiest ingredients and, and, and cover more and do more for uh, ensuring safety for the consumers. Wow, 2,400 ingredients. What was, <laughs> the, what was the product, if you don't mind me asking? The product was actually candy. <laughs> wow. Their products were candy, a whole series of candy and um and a bunch of chocolate and, and gum. And it's something that's near and dear to a lot of us. And especially <laughs> me, I love chocolate. <laughs> so um, I had to do a really, you know, I, it, it was important to get that. And that's very common in the food industry, actually. Um, they have a lot of ingredients that go into um, one little product um, to before it goes into the shelf, there's a lot of processes that that happens and there's a lot of safety checks that need to happen before it makes it to the consumer. Yeah, that's interesting because you look at the back of the label and 
you certainly don't see 2,400 ingredients listed there. So is it just that there's other ingredients involved in sort of the processes that go into the final product that don't have to be reported on that label? Oh, no, the 2,400 ingredients is that entire company's um, ingredients. They they have different (laughs) products. No, 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 no. We we don't want 2,400 ingredients in a chocolate bar. (laughs) I was was going to say, I thought it was a fairly straightforward thing there. Uh, That makes a a lot more sense. Forgive me for that. No, that's all right. Uh, So as you said, your Kamen presentation is a lot about risk assessment when it comes to contaminants and um, in, in cannabis and in hemp products. Um, so when it comes to those those products, cannabis and hemp products, uh, which do you feel have kind of the greatest risk in terms of uh, contaminants? Um, you mean the products or the contaminants itself? Uh, but, well, let's start with the contaminants. So I know that there's, you know, microbial contamination, heavy metals, pesticides, residual solvents. Um, right. Where do, How do you kind of rank them? Or are they all, I mean, I guess they're all pretty bad. Well, they're all pretty bad, and but and they're important, but they're important in different stages of the of the life of what we call from from seed to shelf. So, as we all know, um, in the hemp world, uh, that hemp is a, a phytoremediator, which means it absorbs um, things from the. Uh, whatever is in the soil. So from the, well, first of all, you have to start with good quality seeds and, um, and, and there's not much of concerns for contaminants there. Once you get into the ground, you start the exposure um, to contaminants and that's where the risk is. How likely is it to be there and how likely is that, is, is there to be going to be multiple um, contaminants present in, in, in the sample or in that um, material that you have? So in the beginning, um, pesticides and heavy metals are really important because as you plant it, as in that you're growing it, that's really what you expose your um, hemp for, even though the farmers uh, don't necessarily apply to the um, apply pesticides uh, as they're growing. Um, except in really emergency needs and when there's an infestation or something like that. Um, the crops that were there before, some pesticides could have been used for it. And then there are there's also the pesticides that have lingered in the soil from DDT, for example, from 20 years ago. It just doesn't want to go away. So it's still there even at low levels. And then the heavy metals, which are just part of the soil. You know, lead, cadmium, and arsenic, and sometimes, and sometimes, and then as you grow them, um, you use water, you know, to irrigate, and and you have to think about the irrigation system, what kind of contaminants you're introducing, and those usually are also pesticides and some um, synthetic compounds that you introduce as you um, as you grow that. So in that early stage. Um, it's your focus is uh, pesticides and then heavy metals, and then you harvest it. And as you harvest it, then you get into the then you introduce some of the micro because of storage and um, when there when there's moisture and um, so the pesticides still you inherit the pesticide, and then as you store them, there are still some er- there are still areas that use. Uh, pesticides or insecticides for cleaning in the material area where you store them so you could expose it to them and then micro uh, 
um, microorganisms can start growing and then you can start having problems um, if the, the storing is not proper and there's moisture. And then you take that from the, um, from the material that you have and then you get into processing it. Um, let's go to the extraction part. As you extract it, that's when you start um, introducing the risk for um, residual solvents because that's what you use. Um, to extract them and all that and and the process and that as you clean it up, um, it, there's a high possibility that um, residual solvents could still remain and and sometimes mistakes happen in in the extraction process and it's not the right solvent or something things like that. Those are of course extreme situations. And then as you go take your extracts and you go into the production of other products where you incorporate um, um, your extracts or your oils, um, you introduce other ingredients. And as you buy ingredients in some of it, like, for example, you combine your extracts with frankincense or um, some exotic scents and essential oils, um, you introduce a lot of, then you go back to increasing the risk for contaminants again. And the reason for the higher risk of contaminants is if you're importing ingredients from outside of the United States um, or you're, you're taking ingredients outside of the intended market, um, geographical market of your product, um, the laws and regulations are different in other parts of the world to, to ourselves. For example, in, in the food industry in the EU, um, carbaryl is not allowed, is, has, no longer has a tolerance for um, grapes, or it's very low. I think it's the LOQ of the method. In the United States, carbaryl is allowed at 10 parts per million. So you could be making a product that you're getting from grapes here in the U.S. and be perfectly comfortable that you're, then you find carbaryl, you'll be perfectly comfortable here in the U.S. Um, because you're well under what's allowed at 10 parts per million, send it over to you and your product will be out of compliance because carbaryl is not allowed there. And that happens a lot uh, back and forth. For example, for apple juice concentrate, um, the methoate or methoate is allowed in in Brazil. If we import here into the United States, the methoate, the tolerance for the methoate in apples have been, has been revoked. So it now becomes non-compliant, even though it was compliant from where it came from. But it enters here, we use it, it is not compliant. So the regulations... Um, uh, enter into that a whole lot um, and, and it has to be taken to, that's part of the risk and so that's basically at the end and then at, uh, and then when you when you bottle your uh, so that's basically how you look at the distribution of the contaminants for for hemp anyway and um, so you, you have to determine, what you're doing with it, where it's coming from, and what's going, and all the other things that, uh, when you have final product that's a derived product, um, what went into the product, and where all those things came from. Absolutely. So it seems that, you know, the best practice really is to be doing 
uh, ongoing testing throughout the entire um, life of the plant, life of the product. I mean, I know that so much of, I mean, on the medicinal genomic side, we work with labs and provide them with microbial testing technologies. And, you know, that's really at the, at the end stage of all of this. It's, so it's the final product that gets tested before it can finally go to sale. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of manufacturers or, or cultivators sort of think that that's where sort of this, the testing begins, but it sounds like, um, there should have been a lot of testing going on before then. Uh, yes, because if you if you think about it, if you're making a product, you know, in 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 we used to have I don't a, a long time ago uh, we used to have this saying um, in the food industry a lot uh, a lot of my years were spent with the food industry that if you're testing the final product by the time it's in the can it's too late to correct anything because if right. you f- test your final product and you find contamination you already have thousands if not millions of cans sitting out there what are you going to do with those now but if you create a practice where you're tracking it from especially because hemp is such as although it's been in existence for a while um a lot of this uh, best practices is new uh, there's not a lot of um background data so you don't know um really the predictability um, of having is, is is still not as well set as is it as it is in some, you know, food matrices that in the food world that we've been doing like apples, oranges. You know the risk and all this stuff. Uh, uh, generally, know the contaminant risk. Yes. So that was the long answer. The short answer to your question is yes. <laughs> um, it is a good. It it is really good practice to keep an eye on your product from seed to shelf. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that's that's a difference between at least on the cannabis side and food testing, where I know in the U.S. that we have third party labs that sort of test the the final product to um, give it the stamp of approval before it goes on the shelf. But again, correct me if I'm wrong, that's not really how food testing works, right? It's more sort of on the manufacturer or the uh, producer to do their own testing. Am I, do I have that right? Um, not quite because <laughs> okay. uh, Glad I we'd, have, we'd, we'd have to close, we'd have to close down our labs if that was true, that were oh, true. our food labs. <laughs> so, um, there are testing that, um, is in the, um, um, in the manufacturing plants that are necessary for them to do um, in, in place, um, like their quality requirements, and they're usually fast, um, fast test. But um, food companies you actually use um, third-party labs um, a lot because it is very expensive to maintain your own lab, and they have. Um, it's not only uh, uh, the food testing laboratories, uh, the food. Testing are you? They usually utilize in the food industry third parties. I um, define it for uh, for two things: the things that should be in food and the things that should not be in food. And they can't, which means like your nutritional label, your your uh, proximates, your fat, calories, your vitamins. Mm-hmm. That's the what should be in food. And then my world, 
which is the, which are the things that are should not be in food. And those are the pesticide contaminants, heavy metals, any other contaminants that you could think about. And testing, um, it's it's uh, the go to is usually a third party lab because it is very, like I said in the beginning, it's very expensive to maintain your own um, lab in house, and it does require a lot of equipment, expensive equipment, and highly trained people to be able to produce the kind of quality that um, we use the term defensible in court. You know, when when you have you you have to, to consider um, safety and compliance, and in the contaminant side. Um, they use us often because uh, not a whole lot of food companies nowadays, it, uh, it used to be more, um, have their own um, testing labs. Um, they've gone to the third party route. And, and, and people, because sometimes people think that it's not really required to test for you know pesticides. You, you take a risk. You don't have to. There's no law that asks you to test for pesticides or heavy metals, but that's actually not 100% true. Because the law in the food industry says that you cannot introduce adulterated food into the system. But then pesticides and heavy metals are, um, are defined by law as um, adulterants. Mm-hmm. So indirectly, yeah, you have to because you cannot have adulterants in your food. So you have to test for them. And... Um, Third-party labs are, are are the way to go for a lot of companies. It is a lot less. It is uh, makes a lot more sense economically to use a third-party lab. I see. So maybe that's where my misunderstanding lied or laid <laughs> um, <laughs> was with um, that there is no kind of strict law that says you must send it to this lab and have them sign off on it, but. It's sort of just a more broad general law that says, you know, you can't introduce anything that's contaminated. And then yes. um, the way that they, they meet that mandate is to send it to a lab like yours. That, so that, that's yeah, pro- so that's the difference. They, 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 they don't, um, they, they suggest methods and all stuff, but they don't dictate you to go to a certain lab. Like they have, they should have these registrations like TA registrations and all that good stuff. <laughs> Got it. Uh, and so to continue in sort of this vein of comparing cannabis and hemp to more traditional food testing, how is cannabis and hemp testing kind of different than food testing just in terms of like the matrix itself? Is it a more difficult uh, matrix to work with when you're looking for things like this? Uh, uh, it it uh, more difficult would be like an understatement. It's, wow, it's really complex. Um, the the plant material is very complex. It has a lot of you know you have all those gonna have. Um, I'm I'm gonna speak about um, for contaminants because that's I know that very well. Um, sure. It took us a long time. Like for example, when you in food, just take an apple. Apple is mostly ninety percent water some sugar in there, a little bit of minerals, and it's nice and clean. When you, when you inject it into a, for example, when you do that, your extraction, um, you inject it into the, uh, into a GC, you get a nice long baseline. And if there's some pesticides, the peak comes up because that's the method. It's very easy to hemp. On the other hand is like, um, 
uh, there's so many things you have to it's it's like um a field of grass that's what it looks mm. like <laughs> or, or it's like a field of you're going through a field of grass whereas um when you're doing apple you're like walking on um paved road that's the difference <laughs> interesting so it's very uh the matrix itself is very complex and there are um compounds that are that are present in there that could mimic that are very similar to sometimes the pesticides themselves so you have difficulty in separating them and um whereas in in many of the food that's established already um you could easily do a screen for 300 to 500 pesticide compounds that is not the case for hemp it's it's quite challenging um and especially if you have to meet um ISO standards, then it, it becomes really expensive when you have to validate for uh, testing in hemp. Yeah, and in talking with other other folks in the lab testing space, one of the things that they always come back with as being one of the major challenges in, in doing what they're doing has to, has to do with standardization. Um, and I think the kind of the first thing is kind of is in line with what you were talking about was just having good standards to work off of um, in terms of all the different cannabinoids and things. So how does that sort of lack of standard make things even more difficult for you? Um, it, it, it challenges. It's challenging for everybody because that is the, the basis of your ability to quantify um, mm-hmm. your results. So if you're... If Lab A uses a standard, they're assuming that they're all the same. But, for example, um, cannabinoid A, I'm just going to do it in general terms. A cannabinoid A um, and Lab A standard is 99% pure in that for cannabinoid A, whereas Lab B um, is, when you finally look at it, the cannabinoid, the cannabinoid A for the reference standard for lab B is 95% pure, then you have a 4% difference in, in, in results Mm -hmm. and it will be consistent. The difference will be consistent. So unless, um, and hopefully unlike, um, other materials, um, NIST has reference standards, and you all know that this is when, when you, you know, you can, you can calibrate, to that material because everybody agrees that that material has this kind of concentration. We don't have many of that around for the uh, cannabis and hemp world yet in the testing. Um, pesticides is different, but in the cannabinoids, because uh, pesticides, the reference standards are very well established. And heavy metals. Mm-hmm. And to sort of continue that line on, on standards, I know that you're involved with um, a couple different groups who are sort of trying to establish some standards sort of in, in different areas. Um, and I, I guess let's start with um, with the U.S. Hemp Authority. Um, what are you looking at from a lab safety perspective in terms of, um, I know that, well, let me backtrack. Um, the U.S. Hemp Authority is working on kind of certifying companies who are um, distributing hemp products. So, and I know you're involved with that. So what are you looking at from a lab safety perspective when you're looking to certify companies? 
Well, actually, what they're looking to certify is the, the, the good practices from, from beginning to end in different areas of the, uh, from, from the growing to the production. And so um, basically, because there's not only the actual reference standards, but there's a lack of standards itself on, on how, what you do when you have this plant. You know, how do you harvest it? How do you test it? And what testing should be done? And that's the the, the goal, I think, uh, for me, the U.S. Amp Authority, the certification program, is to standardize this and, um, and to give um, those that are involved in the hemp industry a, a, a good, solid ground to look at as far as what is, what, how do you um, work with within the, the industry you test the product and so that you can assure a um, high quality and quote unquote safe um, product for consumers out there. And um, just a little plot, uh, the guidance three, the USM authority has just come out actually with the guidance three and it's out for public comment. And it'd be great if, if everybody could look at that and in, in the hemp world and um, comment on the guidance that, um, because uh, it, it was revised, um, especially with the um, IFR that just, you know, after the IFR came out. Yeah, that's great. And I'd be happy to put a link in the show description too, so people can easily find that um, and, and submit their comments. So how does sort of the certification or the standards that the U.S. Hemp Authority is creating, how would that differ from what we hope eventually the FDA will come out with in terms of, of safety standards. It's actually very aligned to um, there. There's there's um, everything that we did. We hope uh, uh, we purposely made sure that it's aligned with um, the USDA and and all the uh, and and a lot of auditing. Um, groups there so that um, everybody has the same standard to work from. So they're, they're aligned and sometimes the requirement of the certification is a little more robust um, in some area and in other areas, the, uh, the USDA um, is more robust. Although if you have the HAMP certification, you will be meeting the the goal, the goal is that you're meeting the USDA requirements. Right. So you're sort of, that's sort of, you're meeting it and more, and more. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And one of the other groups that you're, that you're working with, and it sort of ties into some of these uh, USDA requirements that came out with, with the farm bill is I know that one of the groups that you're working with is a, uh, the HIA's sampling and analytical task force for sort of coming up with standards around sampling. And I know that that's, that's needed because, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but when those standards originally came up for the farm bill, um, there was quite a difference between um, the sampling standards that they set out there as compared to sort, sort of like some of the international standards that have been in place elsewhere outside of the US. So um, I didn't know if you wanted to kind of briefly comment on um, how the what the disconnect is between those two sets of standards and um, maybe give a glimpse into what you guys are working on. Well, the, it's it's um, 
it's always the same problem with sampling because it's statistics and it's very difficult for people to come to an agreement on what uh, really is the best approach to sampling. And there are many, many things to consider, like even just idea of sampling, um, what part of the plants do you sample um, to define that? And how, ma- how much percent comes from the top, from the middle, the bottom? Right. And so that uh, that is um, up for discussion because there are always many, um, many points of view. And um, in the end, what uh, and and it's like you know many ways to skin a cat, and most of them are statistically valid depending on how you look you look at them. And so that's the aim. I think uh, that's the aim of the of the um, HIA's um, sampling task force is to come up with a um, not only a relevant and um, a solid a fit for purpose sampling plan, but it's also not, um, not burden. And it's not, a bur- it's not going to be a burden for the, um, the growers or the people in the hemp industry. So you want to uh, get that balance of the fit for purpose and the practical, the, and the practical aspect of the sampling. So you, you want to marry them together so that we all are happy. We can all do it. And, you know, it's, it, because if you make this, the sampling part is part is very is key. Um, because if your sampling is messed up, then it doesn't matter what you do afterwards. The testing mm. becomes irrelevant if the sampling is messed up. Uh, the interpretation is 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 going to be different. So it's important that um, everybody ha- um, that the sam- sampling portion is not so difficult that people get discouraged and don't follow the proper way of sampling anyway. So you want to marry that practical and fit for purpose. Well, yeah, it sounds, <laughs> sounds challenging for sure. And I know that when I had spoke with, um, I believe it was Brianna Cassidy, who is another lab manager who's going to be presenting at CanMed. Um, she, she said that the difference in potency in one cannabis plant, you know, from one blood, one bud to another can be vast. It could be as much as 50% difference, um, plus or minus, which sort of blew my mind a bit. So I imagine that that's something you need to keep in mind when you're, you were thinking about sampling to try to get a, a true representation of what this plant really is. Yes. We're dealing with, we're dealing with an organic material, you know, so it's, it's, it's very difficult. It's not uniform. It, the, the, the weather, the amount of sunlight two days ago or things, or where you cut it, so, so many factors um, affect the um, uniform distribution. It's, you know, if you, because if you, if you think about it, it's like the distribution of the cannabinoids. For if you had like a whole basket of blueberries and you sometimes apply uh, pesticides on the surface or it's, it gets mold on the surface. Um, if you don't mix it properly and if you don't um, quarter it, portion it, you could end up just getting the top and a whole bin, uh, a whole uh, a whole load of, of your contaminant. But if you mix it, then you distribute it evenly and you, you, you have a better representation of the entire sample itself. And that's, um, and that's really one of the key things to consider um, when you're 
creating or writing a standard for sampling. And, and the plant material is uh, the hemp is a very um, challenging. It's, it's, yes, it's a challenge. And every, and mm-hmm. hopefully we can all come to an agreement on, because if everybody's doing it the same way, then, you know, the, um, you have um, confidence that you'll all be getting the same results. Great. And, and finally, I, it's kind of working down your resume here. Um, your involvement with AOAC as well and the CASP task force. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what you guys are working on there. Um, the the uh, the uh, the AOAC CASP um, program is actually working on a lot of different things. They have um, they have a group that's involved with the mycotoxins, and they have the group with the cannabinoids and um, the group that I'm involved in is in the training and education. So there's a lot of going on. And I think CASP has, uh, they were the one that um, established the method for testing for, uh, for the potent, uh, the cannabinoid, um, the concentration, the cannabinoid, the THC concentration. And they, so they're, they're the group is aiming to um, standardize the analytical testing portion and there is also a part for sampling, but um, and they're trying to put that together. So hopefully um, the HIA, the AOAC, the USDA, and everybody could be aligned in their approach to sampling. Right. I mean, I guess that's one of the challenges of multiple groups trying to set standards is that there needs to be some standardization amongst, amongst them as well. Yeah, so. yes. Mm-hmm. So just in closing here, Grace, I don't know if there's any closing thoughts you want to have or um, if you want to give folks either your social media, if you're on it, or any ways to get in touch with you for um, any additional questions um, prior to the event. This is your opportunity now. Um, well, uh, just uh, uh, the one thing that I kind of always like to tell people is um uh, don't forget your contaminants, especially your c- chemical contaminants, because they 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 are important, and you need to to be cognizant that they they are present, and then you could potentially expose your consumers to contaminants, and if if you're not paying attention to them, and um, to contact me, I'm on LinkedIn, and um, I'm old school. I'm kind of old school, so my email is on LinkedIn. And <laughs> And that's pretty much my social media presence. <laughs> <laughs> that's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. You're probably healthier for it. <laughs> so, um, and so if, if they connected me in LinkedIn, I would be able to get to it. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Grace, for taking the time. And we look forward to seeing you out in Pasadena. Me too. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Grace Bandong. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And please also check out our sponsors, Eurofins and the Hemp Coffee Exchange. Our next episode will drop September 30th. In the meantime, please go to cammenevents.com slash coffee talk to sign up for email updates. That will enter you into a drawing to win two tickets to our CanMed 2021 VIP dinner and keep you up to date with all things CanMed 2021. 
You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, if you're listening via a podcast app, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so new episodes automatically download to your device. And please leave us a five-star review as well. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next episode of the CanMed Coffee Talk Podcast.